In none of our lessons will we find a greater contrast than in lesson number 31 when we discuss the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Proverbs seems to be optimistic and promising of blessings for obedience, while Ecclesiastes is pessimistic and saying that everything is meaningless. Which of these two books should we pay attention to? Well, is it any surprise? The answer is both. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to this week's podcast. Today's lesson is number 31, Happy is the Man that Findeth Wisdom. And we are beginning our study of what's called the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, the three books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Job will cover next week. Uh, But before we begin, I have a question uh, emailed to me from Max. Max asks, why was it Elijah that had the sealing power for the purpose of restoration later? Second, why was that power taken with them and not given to later prophets like Elisha or Isaiah? Any thoughts? Thank you, Max, for your question. Uh, My own personal take on this, I I referred to it in in my lesson, but to to give a more specific answer to that question exactly, James Farrell's idea in his book, The Hidden Christ, is that Elijah was given the sealing power or the joining power because he lived in such a time of separation. And he talks about the four great separations, man from God, man from the temple, man from their own posterity, and man from each other. And I added a few to that. And he advanced the theory that God gave Elijah the power to join because they were so man was so separated. In other words, spiritual death was so prevalent. Uh, my own take is that, that that's a valuable idea. And also, I think... Elijah was the head of a dispensation. That's, that seems to me to be indicated by the fact that, Mo, that Moses and the other prophets that appeared to Joseph Smith were also dispensation heads, and he was given the keys from those dispensation heads. Now, does this mean that Elijah did not pass his sealing power on to Elisha and that Isaiah did not have the sealing power? Um, also, I don't, I don't think that is necessarily supported by the scriptures. We don't know, but it seems likely that Elisha did have um, exactly what Elijah had, especially by the fact that he asked for a double portion or the birthright of Elijah's spirit. So thank you for that question. I hope that answers that for you. And uh, we look forward to receiving any other questions from those of you out there listening. Please email those to gt at gospeltoctrine.com or uh, contact us on Facebook. Well, we're, I'm excited for this lesson. Uh, I, I guess I should qualify that. I am very excited to teach today about Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and this has been the single most difficult lesson for me to prepare for since I began earlier this year. Uh, and I, I actually had a first this week, or in, in this lesson. I recorded a version of this 
podcast that I cannot release because I didn't feel like I did enough, a good enough job with it. Um, last week I was going on a, I was on my way out of town for a backpacking trip Saturday morning and uh, I thought I'd stay up late Friday night and record and I'd I found so many resources, uh, way more than I thought I ever would, to help me prepare to teach the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And so I felt very well prepared, but what came out was such a jumble, and uh, it didn't help that I was doing it. I was up until three in the morning recording, and it was just unusable. So I apologize for all of those of you who've been waiting for this episode, and uh, I resolve not to make you wait too long. Uh, Sometimes life gets in the way. Nevertheless, I, I referred earlier to all the references or the, all the resources I found. It's so exciting how much there is about the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me tell you a little bit about my impressions over the years of what Ecclesiastes is and how I was wrong. Whenever I would open the book of Ecclesiastes, first of all, you, you find this word vanity, just repeated, 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 if you're reading the King James version of the Bible. And it doesn't mean vanity as in conceit, uh, conceitedness. I'm, everything is vanity. I'm looking in the mirror and thinking that I'm the best. Uh, what it means is the vanity in the sense that I have done something in vain. In other words, it's useless. And in fact, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how valuable it will be, how, how valuable other translations will be to you uh, in this lesson. And I think they'll do you more good reading the book of Ecclesiastes than just about anywhere else. In the book of Genesis, you can, you're reading the King James Version, it's archaic language, but you can get the gist of the story, and the gist is often good enough. There are fiery flying serpents, and you don't realize that means there are fast-striking, venomous serpents in the book of Genesis, right? But you still get the point. There are dangerous beasts around, and uh, the Israelites are falling victim to them. So the translation might confuse you slightly, but you still get the point. The book of Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, is a philosophical essay. And when that being the case, we have to have a very exact understanding of what's being communicated or the whole thing is lost on us. And case in point, my own understanding of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, the, the very first chapter opens up and we, and we seem to be reading a book written by Solomon saying, I, everything is meaningless and I am, or everything is vanity. I was the king in Jerusalem. My father, I, my father is David, right? So right away we get this this impression we're reading a book written by Solomon. I'll examine that impression in in a few minutes. But um, what do we know about Solomon? A man who had great blessings, spiritual blessings from God. I referred to him as a prophet uh, in the lesson we did on Solomon, um, and he was a prophet in the sense that God spoke to him. And he was not a prophet in the sense that God did not call him to represent God spiritually to the people. He was to re- represent God in a governmental sense to the people. So, uh, and a prophet in, in ancient Israel, somebody who is called to say, thus saith the Lord. And that wasn't Solomon's job. Nevertheless, he did receive direct visions from God. And later in life, made choices, made all kinds of terrible choices to uh, disobey the commandments of God to the kings of Israel, written in Deuteronomy 17, and therefore fell away from his the light that he had known. And so my impression of what Ecclesiastes was, was Solomon, later in life, 
had grown cynical because he had fallen away from truth, become inactive, as, as we might say today. And therefore, he's written this book that's kind of worthless to us because it tells about how meaningless everything is and how worthless it is to even try. It seems like it's such a defeatist book. And because I couldn't understand all of the language, and no, I don't think anybody today can, and, unless you have another translation to compare it with, and then you say, oh, that's what that phrase meant in Elizabethan or King James English then you can understand, oh, I, I now see. Um, and some of the more modern translations actually have things in quotes. For example, the writer might be putting forth an idea to say, as if God, God made this happen, as if to say this. And when you're reading it in the King James Version, there are no quotes. There's nothing to make clear that he's putting forth an idea that he's not actually advocating himself, but he's expressing the idea as held by another person. That's just one example of how having a, a correct and modern translation can help you. Now, as Latter-day Saints, we, we follow the, or we use the King James translation for a lot of very good reasons. Um, and we should not consider it a sin or we should not consider anything wrong about going outside of that tradition because... King James, while it is a very good translation, it's not perfect, and it's also, as I said, archaic language. And so some ideas are difficult to receive through that medium. Uh, so let's open open your... Well, I guess, I guess what I'm going to start by doing is comparing and contrasting the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And I don't know how useful this will be to you in your teaching. If you're teaching a gospel doctrine course, you may or may not choose to take the same approach that I'm going to use with you. Um, and this is approach very different from the manual. The manual has, and I spoke about this attitude earlier, don't treat the Bible as if it's just a, a compilation of bumper stickers, right? Just pick a quote out and then talk about that quote and then say, how does it apply in your life? Well, that actually is the way that you kind of have to approach the book of Proverbs because it's a book of Proverbs. So it's one proverb after another, and there there are some unifying themes, but there's no narrative, there are no prophets, and it is, in general, just a compilation of these proverbs. So we'll talk about what those proverbs are and what they create, what attitude they create in us, and compare that to the attitude that Ecclesiastes creates in us, which is very different from the way the manual describes you to teach the lesson. We, the manual actually quotes two very short scriptures from Ecclesiastes and then ignores the rest of the book. And we're going to spend most of our time in Ecclesiastes because, in my opinion, it's way more important. So uh, needless to say, my opinion of Ecclesiastes has changed dramatically studying it, and I feel like my eyes have been opened, and I'm very grateful. Um, so let's talk about Proverbs. First of all, um, I'm going to be using... The basis for a lot of the things I'll be saying about Ecclesiastes is the ideas of a preacher that I've that I've referred to in the past. His name is Tim Mackey, not a not a Mormon, but um, very very informed about the Old Testament and very very useful. His main podcast is exploring my strange Bible, but this actually comes from um, one of the websites of his former church. So Tim Mackey is his name, if you want to look at that. And that that church, it's called the Door of Hope. It has over six hours of, of video presentations just about the book of Ecclesiastes in addition to everything else that I found. So there are 
there are actually um, plenty of resources to understand Ecclesiastes if you're if you're interested. And I, uh, I it's very rewarding. I can recommend it if you have the time. So before we talk about Ecclesiastes, let's spend a little time on the proverbs that are probably most familiar to you, and also on the attitude and the expectations that these promises might create. The I, I think by far the most famous verse in Proverbs is, or the verses passage, is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. And in the King James Version, it reads, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not to thine own understanding, in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Another translation of that last phrase is, he shall direct thy paths, he shall make thy paths straight. Now if we continue on, and this isn't, this is no longer King James, um, the, the following verses say, do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Or as or as we might be more familiar hearing it, health in the navel and marrow to the bones. So this makes a number of claims, and I and I am purposely avoiding the word promises. Um, so often in the scriptures we read a promise, we read a, a commandment, and then a promise. And in the Doctrine and Covenants, we read, whenever you obtain a blessing, it is by obedience to the commandment upon which it is predicated. And we also read, I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say. And this is what Tim Mackey uh, refers to. This, this idea is a reinforcement of what, of what Tim Mackey calls the myth of religious fulfillment. And I think that's a very good term. We're going to talk a little bit about what that idea means. So here in this, in this passage... There are a couple of promises. One is guidance. If we trust in the Lord, then he's going to direct our paths. It sounds like a really good deal. All we have to do is acknowledge God and trust in him, and then he's going to make our paths straight. In other words, it's not going to feel like we're wasting our efforts. Uh, the one translation of he shall direct thy paths means we're going to receive personal, We, uh, I think, from a Latter-day Saint perspective, we're going to feel like we're receiving personal guidance from God in our life. Or if our paths are straight, it's going to feel like decisions practically make themselves. So there's this promise here, or what we can take as a promise, a lot of people choose to take as a promise, of straight paths or of, of guidance. Let's look at another uh, very popular proverb Chapter 13, verse 9. The light of the righteous rejoices, and the lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. And this idea is repeated in Proverbs 24, 20. Uh, the, the lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. So, again, we have this idea that um, God is promising justice. So we've, we've got a promise of, and I neglected to mention in the last passage, the promise of health. So we've if we will just fear God and shun evil, then we have the promise of health to our body. So we got promise of guidance, justice, and health. Uh, who could want for anything more? I mean, sign me up. I'm going to worship Jehovah all of my days. The problem is, in this, uh, the first questioning of this idea we find in Job, Job chapter 21, verse 17. How often, and I'm not going to read the verse, but the, the question is asked, is it true that the 
the lamp of the wicked is really snuffed out? How often does that happen? How long do we have to wait for that to happen? And then uh, in Ecclesiastes, now we're, so it's, it's kind of like in ascending order of pessimism, We've, we're looking at these three books of wisdom in the, in the Bible, and they're called the wisdom literature, and I'll explain why. Uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15, I have seen a righteous man who perishes despite his righteousness, and a wicked man who has a long life despite his wickedness. This too is vanity, or this too is meaningless. This too, we'll talk about that, that word vanity, meaningless. We'll talk, that's going to be one of the main thrusts of our discussion on Ecclesiastes. The point is, in Ecclesiastes, the exact opposite idea is expressed. In Proverbs, the, the light of the righteous rejoices, the lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. In Ecclesiastes, sometimes the righteous man perishes despite his righteousness, and the wicked man lives a long life uh, despite his wickedness. Which one is true? So, obviously, both of them have some facet of the truth, and that's what we're going to talk about. That's the whole point of what we're talking about today. So this, this idea of the myth of religious fulfillment is that if we, first of all, that it's founded on the idea that Proverbs are actually promises, but they're not promises. They are Proverbs. And so if we follow these Proverbs of obedience and of trust then and of righteousness, then what is likely to happen? Is it likely that we're going to be blessed more? Is it likely that we're going to see these blessings during our lifetime? Is it likely that we're going to be happier and more fulfilled? Yes, it is. Of course it is. But is it possible for those things not to happen, or at least not to feel connected at all to the righteousness, to come years later, to feel like they never came at all, and any blessings we receive are just random as opposed to being connected to our righteousness? Yes, that's also possible. And I'm sure there are plenty of people listening to me who feel like the Lord has directed their paths. And they, for example, uh, they've chosen to move somewhere. This is a very common one. God has given me an inspiration. I've got to get out of town and I've got to go to the promised land, wherever that is. And the promised land represents a land of opportunity for me. So, and that, and that may be, that may well be direct personal revelation from God. The problem comes in, then we think, okay, what is missing in my life right now? Uh, either I'm single and I need a, a mate, or I'm, I have no job, or I have a lack of personal fulfillment in some way. What God is telling me is to go to this new place. It must be a promise that if I go to this new place, that this desire, this unfulfilled hole in my life will be filled when I, when I arrive. And then they get there and they, maybe they wait years for it or it doesn't immediately happen or it never happens or they have to move again. They, they're not sure why they received that guidance. That doesn't feel like a straight path. What that feels like is a windy path. It feels like God is not directing my path. It feels like he is playing games with me. And this, this disconnect that happens when we buy into the myth of religious fulfillment, that if I, if I just believe in God and obey, then all my problems will go away, that my life will get better in every way, and it will happen as soon as I start obeying and believing. 
this myth is it, it creates these these huge expectations and Ecclesiastes the point the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes is to tear those expectations down now those expectations aren't a problem when things are going well when things are going well it means God is acting exactly how we expect him to act and we know God is not acting in a way that we expect him to act when things go poorly and poorly is and when things going well things going poorly that is totally by our definition that's a that's a framework. That is an interpretation that we put on life. It doesn't pre-exist us finding meaning in the things that are happening to us. And so the question that Ecclesiastes prompts us to ask is, what if God, and we think God is the problem. God is not showing up in a way where I expect it. He's not keeping his quote-unquote promises. And the, the question that Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes wants us to ask is, what if God is not the problem? What if my expectations are the problem? Now, in order to give you an introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm going to turn to a a passage in a very unlikely spot in the middle of the Book of Mormon. Uh, And if if you have your scriptures in front of you, open to Alma chapter 18. You'll recall this is when Ammon is teaching before King Lamoni, And King Lamoni has just been given huge reason to think Ammon is sent from God because Ammon has conquered the king's enemies. And he said, okay, whatever you tell me, I'll believe. And so Ammon has a missionary opportunity. He's going to tell the king the gospel, but he's going to tell him in whatever order, however he sees fit, he has to start from nothing. The king knows nothing about the gospel. He doesn't know that, all he thinks is there's a great spirit somewhere and that's it. So, Am- so Ammon starts from the very beginning, and this is very instructive for us. Uh, and we're in Alma chapter 18, verse 35. A portion of that spirit, he says, you know, I'm not, I'm not the great spirit, but I am sent from God. And he says, a portion of that spirit dwelleth in me, which giveth me knowledge and also power according to my faith and desires which are in God. Verse 36. Now when Ammon had said these words, he began at the creation of the world and also the creation of Adam, and told him all the things concerning the fall of man, and rehearsed and laid before him the records and the holy scriptures of the people. Anyway, we read a few more verses, and then in verse 39, it's three verses later when Ammon says, But this is not all, for he expounded unto them the plan of redemption, which was prepared from the foundation of the world, and he also made known unto them the coming of Christ, and all the works of the Lord did he make known unto them. The first thing that Ammon teaches is not about the Savior, is not the good news of the gospel. The first thing that Ammon teaches is the bad news of the fall. In other words, he, he, he follows very st- sound, what you might call standard or sound storytelling technique, which is first you take your main character, which is us, and you drop him into a hole, and then you spend the rest of your story bringing him out of it. Um, or to put it another way, you you tell the bad news first, and then you tell the good news. So if the if the book of Proverbs or the rest of the books of the Bible, the sto- the words of the prophets, and especially the New Testament, those are the good. If those are the good news, the words of Isaiah preaching about how God will gather Israel as a hen gathereth her chicks. Those are the good news. Ecclesiastes is the book in the Bible that gives us the bad news. So what is that bad news? Let's open to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 
And first of all, we're going to get a little bit of historical background. So the word Ecclesiastes uh, is a little bit confusing. What does it mean? It comes from a Greek word, Ecclesiasticus, which is the best the Greek translators of the Bible could do to to render the Hebrew word, which is koholeth. Now, this word is a little bit ambiguous. We're not precisely sure what it means, but um, it seems possible, it seems likely that it means someone who gathers, a gatherer. So it's often been translated as teacher or preacher, and in the, in the King James Version, that's what you read, the words of the preacher, but it's really the words of the koholeth or the words of the ecclesiasticus, now, a preacher is somebody who gathers people together and teaches in front of a crowd. And because he's teaching the subjects of eternity, because he's talking about spiritual matters, he's called the preacher. But a gatherer could also be a gatherer of, of ideas or a gatherer of writings. So this could be the compiler, the editor of, the, of this part of the Bible, or it could be the... Um, it could be somebody who is a shepherd, right? It, the, the word is also rendered shepherd. So when you hear, we're going we're gonna to use the word preacher to refer to the koholeth, but just keep in mind, we don't know exactly what this person's role was. It could be a writer. It could be a compiler like Mormon. He could be fulfilling a role similar to what Mormon did with the Book of Mormon, which is compiling an ancient Bible. Or he could be someone who is actually a physical teacher, or he could be a shepherd, meaning he's a, a pastor and, and a a priest, basically. Um, now, the words of the preacher. Is the preacher, first of all, is the question, is the preacher, two questions, is the preacher Solomon, and is the preacher the author of the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, the, the first question would seem obvious. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. There's only one person who fits that description, Solomon. Does it say Solomon? It does not. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is where I got the idea that this book is just pessimistic and it's Solomon later in life feeling like everything is meaningless. In several of the translations, we'll talk about where you can find those. Uh, this word vanity is rendered meaningless or useless. Um, later, A little bit later on in the chapter, Verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. So it seems very clear that the claim of the book of Ecclesiastes is that the writer of the book is Solomon. Let's skip to the last chapter. Now, if you open up chapter 12, which is the last chapter in Ecclesiastes, and you start in verse 8, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. We, we're sort of back to where we started. Um, and yet this now we can see is clearly a quotation. This person is saying, the preacher is teaching that everything is vanity. Verse 9, and moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. This, the preacher sought to find out acceptable words. So this, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes is describing the preacher. So it's almost like at the beginning, this, this book is written like an extended flashback. It's, the, the beginning is saying, 
the preacher taught in Jerusalem. And at the end it's saying, and these are the things the preacher taught. So it's almost like an old, uh, an old man telling a bunch of kids around the fire, now listen, gather around children, let me tell you about the preacher. So this is where the idea comes from. And, and, and this is still, you might say, a controversy um, among modern biblical scholars. Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? And was the person, were they quoting a direct, directly a work of Solomon or were they making it up? Uh, I don't want to weigh in on that. I have my own opinion, but it doesn't matter so much as you understand the controversy, which is that this the work the book of ecclesiastes falls into a genre that existed in this during this period in the ancient near east which is the in the several centuries before christ which is called royal fictional autobiography meaning um behold all you people i am the king and what i decreed was law this idea that you could write in the voice of a king long dead and tell a story a very popular way of, of writing and of expounding wisdom. So the fact that it falls so clearly into this pattern gives us the idea that perhaps this book was written centuries after Solomon. However, it also says Solomon set in order many proverbs and he sought to find acceptable words. So maybe the, it's clear that the, the author of the book is not the same person as the preacher, but was the preacher Solomon or did the author of the book fabricate it from whole cloth and just tell his own insights. It's almost impossible to know. Uh, but Solomon was it described as the wisest person before him or after. And so would it be possible for him to write something this profound? And um, rather than it being a coincidence that it falls, it happens to fall into a genre that would be popular centuries later. Uh, it might be that Solomon was wise enough to write something that would be adopted by several writers, and it would be, and he was the founder of the genre. So difficult for us to say, and it's not super important. The point is that it's not that Solomon himself is not the author of the book, even though it's not clear whether he is the source of these writings. Now, why does all of that matter? It matters because the 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 preacher is talking about this concept that everything is vanity as we read in King James Version. Well, let's talk about some other translations now that time has come. So if I've talked before about the website biblehub.com, this is one resource for you. All Most of these translations that I'm going to talk about are free, so you can find them online. And by, by free, I mean they're, they're public domain. The King James Version you can easily find online, and you can find that on the church's website. But you can find other translations if you go to BibleHub.com, and then in the upper left you choose which book of the Bible you want to look at. And then next to it you choose which chapter and verse you want to look at. Then the links in the navigation section allow you to, to select different translations. And you can go by chapter, you can view a whole chapter at a time or you can view a verse at a time, and then you can click on the Hebrew or H-E-B link and see what's called an interlinear translation, meaning every word translated to the exact counterpart in English rather than a phrase or a sentence or a, a part of the original that has meaning, translated meaning for meaning. Instead, it's translated word for word. 
And this is profitable because when you're reading the book of Ecclesiastes, you can either read something like Ecclesiastes 7.29. So this is in the, in the King James Version, it reads, Lo, this only I have found that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. And you might read this and think, what, what in the heck does that even mean? Would that man, God has made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. What, what's the problem? So if you, if you look up this same verse on Bible Hub, and one of the, one of the translations that I like uh, is the Good News translation, so it's, it's abbreviated GNT, and th- this verse is, the same verse is rendered, this is all that I have learned. God made us plain and simple, but we have made ourselves very complicated. Now, doesn't that make more sense to you? Don't you think you could understand uh, if, if that same level of obfuscation were, were continued across the entire book? Don't you think you could make more sense of one than the other? I'll give you another quick example. Now we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. If you dig a pit, you fall in it. If you break through a wall, a snake bites you. If you work in a stone quarry, you get hurt by stones. If you split wood, you get hurt doing it. If your axe is dull and you don't sharpen it, you have to work harder to use it. It is smarter to plan ahead. Knowing how to charm a a snake is of no use if you let the snake bite first. That seems like pretty clear wisdom. If we read the King James Version of chapter 10, what we see is, He that diggeth a pit shall fall into it, and whoso breaketh an hedge, a serpent shall bite him. Whoso removeth stones shall be hurt therewith, and he that cleaveth wood shall be endangered thereby. If the iron be blunt, and he do not wet the edge, then must he put to more strength, but wisdom is profitable to direct. Surely the serpent will bite without enchantment, and a babbler is no better. Now you could read that, and you could think, okay, I'm reading the Bible, um, I'm doing what God has commanded me to do, which is try to understand the scriptures, and yet you're no better off when you finish than when you started. If you compare it, now it is, I think it is profitable to to read a translation and look at the King James Version so that we can understand kind of how this archaic language works. And over time, you don't need the translation anymore, the modern translation, if you don't want it. But um, reading, reading the first one gives you the idea that, oh yeah, even though you try to work, it seems like um, the, the things you set your hand to are the very things that hurt you. And if you don't use some wisdom in your in applying your efforts, then things might turn out worse than they even started. Well, you read the second passage and you have no idea what to think. So that's why I recommend, now first of all, you can read the book of Ecclesiastes in about 45 minutes, especially if you read one of these modern translations. And there are, I, w- I would recommend comparing two or three of them. You don't have to read the whole thing cover to cover, but it, it wouldn't do you any harm, and I think at the end of it, you I, I highly recommend it because you would feel like um, you finally, if you're like me at all, you, you had the wrong impression of Ecclesiastes, and then you finally feel like, oh, I get it now. It's a very profound book. So the main idea of the book of Ecclesiastes is this idea of vanity. To go back to the Hebrew word, and you can do this on Bible Hub too if you want, um, you've, you bring up one of the verses that has the word vanity in it, and then you click on the Hebrew thing, and what, hap- what gets brought up is an interlinear translation of that verse. And you find the word that corresponds to vanity, and you click on that Hebrew word, follow it through to its dictionary entry, and you can see how it, how it is defined. 
that's one way to research it. And then you can go from there. You can go to Google. You can find more resources about that word if you want to. This particular word is hevel, H-E-V-E-L in English. And it means, the, the original meaning is smoke or vapor. Now, it, there are as many, trans, there's many translations of this word, almost, as it seems there are translations of the Old Testament. Because, number one, it has a number of different meanings within the book of Ecclesiastes itself. But number two, the word itself is almost an example of the idea that it's trying to proclaim, which is something that is not fixed. And so the the first translation that I thought would be most fitting, the first idea that I came up with was fleeting. So instead of vanity, the idea that everything is in vain uh, and, and therefore meaningless or worthless or useless, as, as some translations render this word hevel, instead of vanity, I substituted the word fleeting. But there are times when things are not fleeting. Injustice is not fleeting. Uh, and, and we'll as we read, maybe those those maybe I'll find some of those examples and maybe I won't, but sometimes the word fleeting is totally fitting. Um, and sometimes it's not. Another word is a is maybe a mystery, something you can't figure out. So when you look at smoke and you look at vapor, it's here one second and it's gone the next. So it's ephemeral, it's fleeting, it's tenuous, it's temporary, but it's also insubstantial. And it's also puzzling. It's complicated. It's a mystery. So all of these words, every word that I've used would be a fitting translation for Hevel. It's a paradox. It's an enigma. It's something we can't figure out no matter how long we try. Now, after a lot of thought and uh, and study and, and pondering, I, I actually think now the best way to translate this word would have been to just use the word vapor. So we, uh, in English, we're very familiar with the use of metaphors, uh, and we're very comfortable with it. So uh, if there are several examples I could give you from from Shakespeare or from other poetry. One 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 poet that I I like is John Keats, and uh, he wrote a poem called "When I Have Fears," and the it's it's basically a bunch of metaphors about life and death. Here's a quote from that poem: "Before before high piled books in charactery in charactery hold like rich garners the full ripened grain." So we we get to we get to engage with him in interpreting with the poet in interpreting what it means to have full ripened grain before we're going to reach the the point at which we die. Um, in other words, all of our works are coming to fruition, and then uh, and 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 it feels like all of our books have been written. Um, On the shore of the wide world, I stand alone and think till love and fame to nothingness do sink. So is he really standing on a shore anywhere? No, obviously. We're we're comfortable with this metaphor. If you've heard of Sylvia Plath, she writes about uh, being being pregnant. There's a poem called Metaphors, and she... We think that she's she's describing her pregnant body. It seems pretty obvious. An elephant, a ponderous house, 
a melon strolling on two tendrils. So did she need to say my my body is like uh, a, an elephant or my body is like a big house or it feels it feels like I'm just this melon and my legs are two little tendrils, two little wispy things below it. No, we get the point that when she says a melon, we don't need her to tell us that it's like a melon in a certain way. Um, I've, here's another further quote. I've eaten a bag of green apples, boarded the train. There's no getting off. So is she talking about heading towards childbirth? Maybe she's afraid of going through this painful process. Well, she didn't say, I'm afraid of going through a painful process. She said, I've boarded a train. There's no getting off, right? She, she's got a, she's got a person growing inside her and there's only one way it's coming out. Uh, Emily Dickinson wrote, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. She never says hope is a bird or hope is like a bird. And this is the point. I wish the original, even in the original Hebrew, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes had used a metaphor, which was all these things are like vapor. And they're like vapor in different ways. And I wish we'd preserved that metaphor rather than translating the metaphor. What, what every translator, and I, I haven't found a single one that preserved the metaphor, what every translator of the Bible has done is to say, what did they mean by this metaphor? Rather than just saying, oh, this entire book is an extended metaphor for life, what life feels like. And life feels like smoke. Sometimes it feels like smoke because it's insubstantial. Sometimes it feels like smoke because it's temporary. Sometimes it feels like smoke because it's inscrutable. It's a mystery. But it always feels like smoke. It always feels like vapor. Um, and so that's the word hevel. And uh, my, my own mnemonic for this word is heavily. So it's heavily uh, used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes or however you want to put that into a sentence to, so you can remember it. But uh, that's an important word to remember. Uh, you may remember in the book of Jacob. Now, the, this isn't a foreign idea to us who've read the Book of Mormon, um, in the book of Jacob, I believe it's chapter 7, he talks about life. It's the, last, it's the last chapter of the book of Jacob. He says, we lived out our lives as it were unto us a dream. And he says he repeats it later. And this is also the idea of Hevel. Life, life was like a, a smoke and a vapor to us. It, it didn't seem real. It, it felt like something was missing. It felt like we were yearning for something that wasn't there. Um, and I think... Anybody who believes in God and believes in an afterlife thinks things are not on this world the way that I feel like they should be, and so I feel like it's kind of like a dream. Uh, so, I mean, I, I don't know whether you agree with me, but every time I read that passage, I, I really resonate with it. I think, gosh, he, he knows what it is. Number one, they were way more isolated than we live today. I mean, they had they knew about another country, another continent somewhere, but they knew they'd never see it again. And so they knew that somewhere there were people and only the only thing they had around them was themselves. And it must have felt very lonely. And so it felt like a dream. Um, and that's the idea. That's also the idea of Hevel. It's, it's this fleeting thing that we can't quite grasp. But I think an even more apt example in the Book of Mormon is when Nephi asks his, um, he wants to understand his father's vision of the tree of life. And this is early on, First uh, Nephi chapter 11. And he says to the, you know, and this angel comes to him and starts explaining to him the vision. And then he is 
given a vision of many things. So if we, if we turn the page to chapter 12, in verse 4, he sees a mist of darkness. Um, and in verse 5, this is actually called the vapor of darkness. Now, the, we have to do a little bit of extrapolation here in, in, in the reverse. We have to extrapolate from the English translation that we do have to the Hebrew original that we don't have. But is the word that Nephi had in his head likely hevel? Yes, it is. Uh, can we say that for certain? No, it's it's impossible to say for certain. But um, Nephi grew up in Jerusalem, and though his children wouldn't have learned the same Hebrew exactly as, as Nephi did because he grew up in Jerusalem, Nephi was a native speaker of Jerusalem Hebrew. And therefore, it seems pretty likely he may even have had already access to the book of Ecclesiastes. He may not have. Uh, we don't know exactly when it was written. Again, we don't know if it was written close to the time of Isaiah or centuries later. But in any case, it seems likely that Nephi was using the same word, hevel. And so he's describing the vapor of darkness, which surrounds everyone the time of Christ's coming to the Americas after his ascension in Jerusalem. And this, this vapor of darkness separating man from God. I think it's a powerful image, not necessarily exactly the way that the, the author of Ecclesiastes uses it, but similar. And then uh, later on in verse 17, the mists of darkness are the temptations of the devil. And I, I talked earlier about the expectations that we have when we succumb to the myth of religious fulfillment, that we think God, if we're obedient, that God is going to bless our lives in all the ways. And, the, and these proverbs, these things that should hold true, are always guaranteed to hold true. And when they don't, then we think, oh, I, you know, this this is just faded from me. Well, that's the point of the book of Ecclesiastes is these things are are hevel. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not a bad idea to follow any of the Proverbs. What's a bad idea is to feel like uh, a proverb is a promise. And then in chapter, in chapter 13, continuing Nephi's vision, uh, he starts seeing more of the future. He starts seeing the great and abominable church. In verse 7, I saw gold and silver and silks and scarlets and fine twined linen and all manner of precious clothing. And I saw many harlots. And the angel spake unto me, saying, Behold, the gold and the silver and the silks and the scarlets and the fine twined linen and the precious clothing and the harlots are the desires of this great and abominable church. And... As we, uh, as we examine, as we dive in now to the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll see this idea that these desires of the great and abominable church, the things of the world, um, continuing in verse 9, and also for the praise of the world do they destroy the saints of God. So you'll see the, the author of Ecclesiastes actually uses all of these things, the wealth, uh, wealth and lust and finery and praise, notoriety, fame, all of these things are described as being vapor. And so first, the it's, it's very interesting that first the angel shows Nephi a vision of this vapor that separates man from God, and then he tells them the desires of the great and abominable church. Uh, very illustrating for our study of Ecclesiastes. So let's, let's now dive in to the book of Ecclesiastes and open chapter 1 again. So we've talked about two ideas from Hebrew. One is the koholeth, or the preacher. Uh, somebody who gathers, and hevel, the vapor, something ephemeral, temporary, fleeting, or mysterious. Now there's one more idea that I think, uh, one more concept, this isn't a word as much, but the idea of under the sun. 
So uh, it's introduced in chapter 1, verse 5, the sun ariseth and the sun goeth down, hasteth, hasteth to his place where he arose. And it's, it talks about how the idea there's nothing new under the sun in verse 9. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. The thing which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. This idea of things happening under the sun, if you remember, first of all, the temple in Jerusalem was was decorated inside with scenes from the Garden of Eden. And it was, the the seventh day was a celebration of the creation of the world. It was a very fundamental understanding and, and concept to them that life was a celebration of the creation. And what was the first event in creation was God saying, let there be light. And then he began to create everything else. So everything else that he created, he created under the sun. And then the world was fallen. And so this idea that uh, things are happening under the sun is a direct expression of the idea that things that happen in this fallen world. So you can, in, in our modern parlance, that's how we would say it. You can substitute that phrase whenever you see under the sun. You can say, in a fallen world, this is the way things happen. Nothing is Nothing new happens. You don't actually come up with a new idea. You think you come up with a new idea, but other people have come up with it and tried it. And and now they are resting with their fathers. And from dust we come and dust we go, right? So this this is the idea of the book of Ecclesiastes, is that everything we invent in our hearts, the things that come from a fallen world are fallen by their nature. And we shouldn't put too much stock. We shouldn't lose faith in God because he didn't, he didn't always allow us to have faith in this myth of religious fulfillment. If we, have, if we build up these expectations and then they're dashed to the ground, that's our own fault. This is kind of the main idea of the book of Ecclesiastes. So down uh, a, little, a little bit farther. I, the preacher, was king in, over Israel and Jerusalem. I gave my heart. So now he talks about the different ways in which he tried to find fulfillment. I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things which are done under heaven. This sore travail or difficult work hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. In other words, in this fallen world, everything is troubling and is vapor, is hevel. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. That which is wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience in wisdom and knowledge. I gave my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. So he's debunked the first myth, which is that if we're smart, if we're wise, that we'll be happy, that we'll find meaning, that we will be able to lay hold on what it is that makes life seem like a dream. Turn the page into chapter two. Now we are staying, I, I, I could read from you, and I probably will, uh, some passages from one of the other translations I mentioned, but for right now, uh, the King James is enough. It's, it's clear enough. I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. Behold, this is also vanity. This is hevel, this is vapor. So now he's talking about laughter, enjoyment, pleasure. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine. 
Okay, so so he goes through wine. You can read these these verses for yourselves, and I and I encourage you to read them in another translation as well. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. So he goes through pleasure, wine, great accomplishments, building building things, and leaving behind legacies. Uh, I made me pools of water to water there with wood. So then he then he plants great great uh, vineyards and orchards. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. So he's got power. Now he's got political power and power over men and women. I also had great possessions, great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and the provinces. You remember, you may remember when we talked about, uh, I, I will make you a peculiar treasure. We talked about this idea of the segula, the thing that a king would value or any person would value over everything else that they had, the pearl of great price, the something that they would lock away in their safe. And uh, the, the fact that we are this segula to God and what a, what a segula might be to a king, what would they value over their whole kingdom? But he got the, he's saying, I found the segula of kings, the thing that wasn't just a segula of a normal person, but the things that were locked away in safes of kings that I conquered. Um, so he had great wealth. He had not only wealth, great wealth, but priceless wealth. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men. And in one of the translations, it says, and I had all the women a man could want. So this is sort of cut out. They didn't, they didn't choose to render that particular idea in the King James Version. But he also, uh, in other words, he tried lust. So he tried wealth. He tried fame, he tried political power, he tried wine, he tried pleasure, he tried wisdom, he tried everything he could think of to find meaning in life and to get at the core of what it seems like life is pushing us towards. What does it all mean? And how do we find it? And how do we grab hold of it? And it's all vapor. You cannot grab hold of vapor. So that's what he says, it's all vanity. So here we we find, we find in verse 11, I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. In other words, he's saying, look at everything I tried to do. I did it of myself, and it all turned to nothing. It was smoke. It just went up in smoke. One day it was all gone. It, it was meaningless. It brought me no pleasure. It didn't, it didn't fulfill any of the things, any of the goals that I'd wanted to do. What I wanted was to be happy, and somehow that just eluded me even though I had everything any person imagines. So this is kind of like somebody who's been through life looking back and saying, don't make the mistakes I made. Please learn now from my example, learn from my words that you're wasting your time if you chase all of these dreams. Now it doesn't, the idea is not that these things are going to do you harm unless, unless they're sinful. The idea is in your expectations, if your expectations of them is that they won't be like smoke, then you're going to be disappointed. You eventually will find out that they are. It's vapor that you're chasing. Now, that idea is, is reinforced in verse 13. I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. In other words, there are things that are profitable. Of course, wisdom is better than folly, right? It's better to be wise than foolish. Um, However, in verse 16, there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever, seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. So if what you're thinking is you're going to gain yourself immortality, 
by being wise, then you're probably wrong. Everybody's going to be forgotten at some point. So your wisdom might help you a little bit, but really what you tried to do, if, if your wisdom causes you to chase after all of this smoke more efficiently, more wisely chase vapor, chase Hevel, then your wisdom is Hevel also. A very fascinating idea. This, this book is unlike any other book in the entire Bible, which is all of the things that are worthless. And this phrase, under the sun, should let us know, okay, so here, here we are trying to understand what it is that God wants us to do. And the book of Ecclesiastes is telling us here also are the things that God wants us not to do. In other words, the myth of re- religious fulfillment would have us believe that if we can take the story that we have imagined for our lives and we can fit God into it, you know, and even give him a major role or, or a starring role, as we might imagine we're doing, that that story will have a happy ending. And what the book of Ecclesiastes wants us to realize is it's not our story. That's a childish way of seeing the world, that the world revolves around us and we are the star of this story, this movie that's constantly unfolding before our eyes. The book of Ecclesiastes is pointing us, is grabbing our heads and forcing us to look at the truth, which is, this story isn't about you. You are a bit player. And if you want to have something that's meaningful, then you have to be part of God's story. Your plan is meaningless. Your plan will turn out to evaporate in front of your eyes. And if you want to be building on anything that has any meaning whatsoever... We'll get to this part where he, where he talks about a little bit of hope. But the hope is largely found elsewhere in the gospel, and especially in the New Testament. As we discussed earlier, the books of Kings and Chronicles are pointing towards this Messiah that has not yet come. And so the Jews between the Testaments are waiting. And the book of Ecclesiastes is reinforcing this waiting. Here's the bad news. We don't yet know what the good news is. Isaiah references it, but it's very cryptic. And so... Um, And we have evidence in the Book of Mormon that there are other prophets who were speaking very clearly about these things, and yet their words are lost. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is almost like an unresolved minor chord at the end of a song where you feel like, oh, uh, I I really wish that there was more to come. But But it's meant to be that way. It's meant to leave this feeling of uncompletedness with you so that you'll remember, oh yeah, every time I try to set up my expectations as being the meaning on which I can build my life, I can now know that I am standing on pure vapor. It's just smoke. And as soon as, as soon as that wispiness of smoke dissolves in the air, it won't even be visible anymore, let alone something I can stand on. Now, there are several verses that talk about what it is good to do. And basically the idea in the, in the book of in the book of Ecclesiastes is that you should eat and drink. You should enjoy your, you should enjoy the, the common pleasures. It starts out in verse 22. It's repeated five or six times in a 12, in a 12 chapter book. So the idea is that simple pleasures are best. Um, and I'll talk about what it doesn't mean in a second, because you're going to think about a particular verse in the book of Mormon when I read this. Ecclesiastes 2.24, there's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. So in other words, eat, drink, and be merry. And we can, we can liken this in our mind to, uh, oh, the, the author of Ecclesiastes is telling me that I need to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. 
And that is what he's saying, but he's not saying it in the same sense that is condemned in the Book of Mormon, which is eat and drink in a sinful way and forget God. What he's saying is take pleasure in the day that you have. And and what it says here, he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. In other words, every day you've got little pleasures, you've got simple pleasures in your life, and you've got work that may not seem like something you should enjoy, but you should you should find pleasure in your work. Chapter 3, verse 13. Let's start in verse 12. I know that there is no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Now, the the beginning of chapter 3 is this poem that, uh, that you'll... You'll recognize the words from our from our lead-in music. It's a song by the birds called Turn, Turn, Turn. To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to kill, a time to heal, to do all of these opposite things. In other words, life is uh, a paradox. It's opposites. And there's a time for one and a time for the, uh, its opposite, and it's all vapor, right? This is This is the idea of vapor, which is a paradox. It's a mystery. He hath made everything, and this is a poem, and even in even in Hebrew it's a poem, but also in English. Um, and in most of the translations you'll read, if you look at the way they're presented on the page, they're, the, the way they're lined out is, is a poetic style. So this is definitely poetry in the original as well as in translation. But again, he repeats this idea after saying there's a, there's a time to every purpose under heaven, um, then then he repeats the idea that we should find pleasure in just eating and drinking in our daily work. In chapter 5, the verse 18 and 19, Behold that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun, again that phrase, all the days of his life which God giveth him for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. So sometimes you'll have wealth, sometimes you won't, or some people will and some people won't, and it's a gift. Whatever you get is a gift of God. Isn't this an interesting idea where where Proverbs would say, the light of the righteous will be lit in in the lamp of the darkness shall, or the, of the, Wicked shall be snuffed out. And Job asked the question, when? When is that? When exactly does that light get snuffed out? And Ecclesiastes says, uh, sometimes the light of the righteous is snuffed out and the, light, and the lamp of the wicked is lit more, more brightly. So this idea is repeated in chapter 8 and chapter 9, that if we, that if we eat and drink, and enjoy our labor. That's that's the only gift we can expect out of life, and even that sometimes is hevel. Um, so if you if and you can kind of look at the chapter headings too to see what the chapter is about. In chapter six, the chapter heading says, "Unless a man's soul is filled with good, his riches, wealth, honor, and posterity are vanity." So even having children, even having posterity, what is considered absolutely the the end all be all of ancient Jewish life. The meaning of life, which was to have a large posterity, it's all vanity and vexation of spirit. Um, in verse in chapter six, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. 
In other words, better to look at what you have than to think about what you don't have. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Now, um, I would love to go through the entire book chapter by chapter and talk about all of it, but the point is at the end, uh, it goes it goes through again in more detail. It, it, the book of Ecclesiastes went through in chapters one and two very quickly, all the different kinds of things that were vanity. And now it goes through, you think that, that this particular thing, and it might talk about work or it might talk about uh, any of the enterprises on which we find ourselves in life or any of the the misconceptions under which we might labor and how all of them are hevel. So this is, it's really trying to drive home the bad news that our plan, if it's not, as long as we are starring roles in our own story, as long as we are living our own plan, it is always going to come to vanity. It is only when we can, even if we, even if it's a minor role, even if it's bit part, if we can accept a role in the plan of God, that's the only way in which we can escape this trap. Now, one of the main ideas is brought home towards the end of the book in chapter 11 at the very bottom. And in verse 9, it, re- uh, it reads, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk thee in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. And this is also translated, do, do what seem, seems good to you. And it's, it's not exactly as it seems. It's not like, oh, you're young, sow your wild oats. It's more like you have a wholesome enjoyment in the health and vigor of youth. And you should look on that as a gift. You should be grateful for it. And you should follow the energy of your, of your body and of your youth wherever it takes you in all of the wholesome places that it takes you. And here's how we know that it's wholesome. Uh, walk in the ways of thine heart, the sight of thine eyes, but know thou that for all these things, God will bring thee into judgment. In other words, he's going to require an accounting of you, of how you spent your time, how you spent your old age as well as your youth. So this is the main idea of the book right here, the book of Ecclesiastes, which is you think that everything is is vapor, and you're going to find out that all of your earthly endeavors are vapor, except that God is going to bring you into judgment, and we don't and he's obviously saying we don't know what that looks like because it doesn't happen during this life. I shouldn't say he's obviously saying that. He's obviously implying that. In verse 10, Therefore remove sorrow from thy heart, put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are hevel. Childhood and youth, they'll be gone in a puff of smoke before you know it. Uh, this reminded me of the, the verse in verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. In this if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. In other words, there are people out there who are seeking pleasure. And they are doing all these things that it describes in chapter 1 and 2 of Ecclesiastes. They're, they're having power, they're having wealth, they're having lust. And they don't see these things as hevel. They see them as very solid and substantial. And we the people who believe in God, and as Paul is saying, Christians who believe in Christ, we have a hope in Christ during this life. But if it's only in this life that we have a hope in Christ, then we're denying ourselves of all these things that are actually the real meaning of, of existence because there is nothing else. So if in this life only we have a hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But Ecclesiastes is saying, 
Know thou, for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. In other words, it's not in this life only that we have hope in Christ. I'll leave you with a final thought, which is a talk by uh, President Hinckley years ago to single members of the church, and it's actually called To the Single Saints. I'm sorry, it's called uh, A Conversation with Single Adults. And he talks about all the difficulties that come with being single and how it's lonely and how it's hard and you can't figure it out. You don't know why. Maybe there's a reason for you. Maybe there's not a reason for this person. And at one point, you may remember the quote, and this is a quote from actually someone else, not President Hinckley, but from a man named Jenkins Lloyd-Jones. And he says, life is like an old-time rail journey. You may, may remember that. We'll get to that quote in a minute. But um, First President Hinckley says this, my heart reaches out in love to each of you. I think that in some measure, at least, I know something of your problems and your desires. You reply, you have never been through what we go through, and so you really do not know anything about it. There is a measure of truth in that, but I hope you will not deny the feelings of my heart for you. I do not sympathize with you because I know you do not want pity. Rather, in a spirit of love and understanding, I simply talk with you in a dialogue. And it goes on to say, I believe that for most of us, the best medicine for loneliness is work and service in behalf of others. I do not minimize your problems, but I do not hesitate to say that there are many others whose problems are more serious than yours. Reach out to serve them, to help them, to encourage them. There are so many boys and girls who fail in school for want of a little personal attention and encouragement. There are so many elderly people who live in misery and loneliness and fear, for whom a simple conversation would bring a measure of hope and brightness. Lose yourself in the service of others. So he talks about how you think you have it bad, but everyone is suffering. And then one of the then the quote comes. It's basically that marriage is um, an exercise in tolerance. And anybody who who's single and thinks that marriage is all wonderful and and uh, you know constant feeling of of love and infatuation, then he talks about this old time rail journey. Anyone who ma- imagines that bliss in marriage is normal is going to waste a lot of time running around shouting that he has been robbed. The fact is, most putts don't drop. Most beef is tough. Most children go, grow up to be just people. Most successful marriages require a high degree of mutual toleration. Most jobs are more often dull than otherwise. Life is like an old-time rail journey. Delays, sidetracks, smoke, dust, cinders, and jolts, interspersed only occasionally by beautiful vistas and thrilling bursts of speed. The trick is to thank the Lord for letting you have the ride. To me, it seems very eloquently to restate the point of Ecclesiastes, which is we we have the daily aspects of our life that we are to take pleasure in, and we're, we're to eat and drink and enjoy our work, and to think that we are guaranteed this constant feeling of joy and happiness in, in this life under the sun is a misconception. It's part of the myth of religious fulfillment that is very dangerous to us. And it's that that very myth that Ecclesiastes is trying to destroy. So I, I recommend something to everyone listening, which is read the book of Ecclesiastes from cover to cover, take you less than an hour for sure. Read it in one of the modern translations. I like the Good News translation, but it's also the new international version. Read the book and understand that it's telling you how to avoid all of these expectations that can make life seem more miserable. And then read this talk, even if you're not single, read this talk by President Kimball, or I'm sorry, President Hinckley, 
a conversation with single adults and see how closely they align. But then the main thing is this. Remember that the book of Ecclesiastes accomplishes much the same purpose that the story of the fall does in Ammon's teaching, which is it sets us up to know that we have a need for a great change to come over our entire world. There's not, it's just something wrong with us and with the little, the few days that we live in our life. There's something wrong with the entire world, and it's because it's a fallen world. It's because we live under the sun. And even though the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't include all of the good news, the rest of the Bible does, and the rest of the scriptures do. We we can find meaning. We can find, not everything is hevel. You'll notice it doesn't talk about how all of God's words are hevel. It doesn't talk about how serving God is hevel. It doesn't talk about how serving other people is hevel. These things are meant to be discussed later, and Christ addresses all of the concepts, and we'll talk about that when we discuss the New Testament. He discusses all of the concepts that are brought up in the book of Ecclesiastes, and he, and he has antidotes for each and every one of them. So even though it feels like the book is saying life is meaningless, what it's really saying is God does have a plan for us, and it's important it's, that as quickly as we can, we get off the track of our own plan. If life is like a rail journey, then we're on the wrong track. We need to get our train onto the track of God's plan. Even if we're just one car in a big train, at least we're on the right track heading in the right direction. And it's there that we'll find meaning. And it's there that we'll understand that good news always follows bad news when we are in the service of Christ. I I leave this with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.